Let us pray. O God, who loved us before the foundations of the world and called us by your word, who has not kept silent but spoke of your revelation to men, grant that we may be transformed by that same word through your Holy Spirit today. O God, who for our redemption gave your only begotten Son to the death on the cross, and by his glorious resurrection delivered us from the power of our enemy, grant us so to die daily to sin, that we may evermore live with him, in him, in the joy of his resurrection. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So we'll spend our time in this Mark passage. And um, as a reminder, we are in a series of Exodus, but we're taking a break from the Exodus study to come back to Mark, which we studied in the fall. And then we will have missed a couple or three chapters, which was leading up to this last, which was about the last week of Jesus' life, um, from the last time we visited Mark to now. And, uh, and so now we're at the very end. And this will conclude our, our study of Mark inside of our study of Exodus. Somehow I thought that was a good idea, and, and I got confused on the whole thing. You might not have been, but uh, if, if I was confused doing it, you might have been confused. So, but as that reminder, we're, we're in this uh, resurrection passage. So I'm thinking, does anybody have a DVR and hooked to their TV like I do? I love these things. So it's, it's something with cable. It's something with cable. Um, it, and so sometimes I, I see something's coming on, and I hit the button, and I set it, and uh, later we return, and we're going to watch this thing. And, and, and you're watching along, and, and like the flow of a narrative, the flow of a story, you're, you're, you're building, and you see the, the uh, plot developed, and we understand what's going on, and then you see that rising action, and then you see the conflict that needs to be settled. And then the turning point comes, or the climax, where the conflict reaches its peak, but then what should come next in any given story is that conclusion. And sometimes when we're returning to this DVR and you're watching, we've seen all of that, including the climax, but then the DVR just quits. The timing was off. The president spoke that day. There was a sporting event. Things are off. The DVR doesn't know it. It just knows the time. And so it quits and you're left. The climax happened. You know the high point, but you don't know how it's settled. And this isn't like the uh, cliffhanger for just getting you to getting you enticed for the next ser- uh, show in the series. You're like, well, how did it end? Well, as we study the book of Mark, that's kind of what's happening here. If you have a uh, an ESV, an NIV, an ASV, uh, I've even seen you had to look harder, but even footnotes in a New King James version um, that would say right below this section of scripture. It says that some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 16, uh, chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. But then, of course, then they go ahead and include those verses for you anyway, which is interesting. So they are there, but the thought is those earlier manuscripts would be older and more reliable. Uh, the earlier, older, yes. The earlier, the more reliable, and therefore, if they don't contain these verses, perhaps... They really weren't the original verses. So, in this case, we're kind of left at this, like the DVR stopped, and we, we're like, well, what's next? Where's the conclusion in here? It's very similar. So, one of the interesting things is Matthew and, and Luke give us, well, and even John, they include this, uh, the resurrection accounts. After the resurrection, the appearance to others. So, 
and one of my favorites is in Luke, in the, the, that same day, Jesus appears to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. When, in this, we get none of that uh, after the resurrection. Well, we're studying Mark, and so we're not really going to spend much time on any of those other things other than what we see here in Mark. And um, one of the things that is similar to our Exodus passage, and I don't want to totally give it away, but this coming the next Sunday when we're back in Exodus, we'll be t- discussing the first plague. We discussed this concept about the snakes and the other things, and it happens again next Sunday where there has to be explanations. There has to be natural explanations to explain away the miraculous. At first, the first plague is the, the um, Nile turned to blood, and who, you all know that can't happen. And just like the, a, a staff cannot become a snake, we all know that. And the idea that one snake, one staff would eat up the other staffs, which were snakes, that makes no sense to anybody, and so you've got to explain it away. So there's people work very diligently to come up with some way to explain away the miraculous. And that's what we, we have seen that already, and that was all the way over here in Exodus. Now, by the time you get through all of those other years, and you get up to now, and you talk about the resurrection, this is only magnified. And so there are all kinds of doubters about the resurrection, and there are all kinds of theories as to what might have happened. And I don't mean to just be ignorant about things. I'm just not going to address any of those, really. And we're just going to talk about what we actually just read here. Because those things, they ignore the simple reading of Scripture so that they can diligently try to explain away the miraculous. And you know me, if I read it, I just believe it. So if, if God says it, I think it's true. And, and I find that an easy way to go. And then I'm not doubting. Now, if you've heard of a particular theory and you want to discuss it, I'd be actually glad to discuss that with you. It is interesting the number of facts that these theories actually all, uh, the, if you take the different theories, and there may be like ten of them, and if you put those together, they all assume certain facts. They recognize certain facts. And then if you compile those facts, it, it, it becomes a, a quite the list of actu- actual facts that support the real historical resurrection. So that's the way we approach and we're going on. Um, and so in this passage, though it's short, as we look at Mark's account, it is of an encounter with the truth of the resurrection, which results in a commission to tell others. So first, it begins in a costly gesture of love. And uh, we're in uh, verses 1 and 2. So verse 1 says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, mother Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. So there's, there are three women in this story, and they had to wait till the Sabbath was over. So during Sabbath, you can't work, you can't be, you, you can't anoint this body because it's, it's the Sabbath. So just as soon as the Sabbath is over and as soon as then it was daylight, which the Sabbath would have ended on Saturday evening, then the first light on Sunday morning, they're, they're hitting the trail so that they can get back to the tomb. And they had these spices, and they're going to anoint Jesus' body, and these spices would have been, this would have been a costly investment for them. It wasn't for embalming. That was later practice, but at this time, it was really to perfume the body. These women that are listed here in verse 1 are the same women, or at least two of them are, are the same women that are listed in the, if, if you've got your Bible open, it's the same page in verse, uh, chapter 15, in verse 40, or 41, and then uh, 47. So, in 40, they're at the crucifixion, and then at 47, they're at the tomb. So, 
this, uh, these, these women, it's not like they're confused. It's not like they didn't know where he was. It's not like they didn't know that he was actually in that tomb. These are not different women. These are those same women. And so that really kind of, just this, just this plain account of that, uh, kind of nullifies some skeptics' views, like they went to the wrong tomb or they lost him or they didn't know where he was. But what is unique about this is, isn't this, isn't this just like God? That the position of women at that, in that day, it's very low. They're almost like, uh, you know, prop, property. And if you wanted somebody to believe your story, wouldn't you really take like a garrison or a, 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 a centurion, a Roman soldier, somebody with clout? And, and, you know, we like to do that with our uh, Christian stuff. If we're going to have a guest speaker for our men's luncheon, we want to have the WVU guy who's a Christian. Because then you'll believe, I, I, don't, I'm, I don't know why. Well, he's, he's popular and the popularity draws. It's almost like, well, you'll believe him. But, you know, just old Don Stats, you wouldn't believe him. What the heck? <laughs> I'd, I'd be more inclined to believe you, Don. Um, but, but, but in that, and not celebrity status, really, and that's really what we would gather for Christian men's, what we like to do. But, but, this, but this would be a thing of authority, respect, and power. That it would just be natural in such a position. But he doesn't choose those. He chooses these women. And then what is interesting, too, is that he chooses this two or three. And you know, in the Matthew uh, 18, am I right? That it's uh, with two or three are gathered. And that's really in the context of church discipline. But the, the number two or three, where it relates to Old Testament witnesses, when you have a witness account of something that's going to be believed, it's going to be this two or three. And if you have this two or three, then it's uh, considered a credible eyewitness account. And so you have this two or three, but they happen to be women, the people of low status. But God uses these who have no voice, these who are not respected by society, these who are not trained, these who are not qualified. And that's who he speaks with. As God has been operating, doesn't that really kind of also fit Moses? I mean, so he's the same God. As he operates in the Old Testament, he operates in the New. So the, the idea that he would choose these women to be these first spokespersons and those first eyewitnesses, it's just like God. The spices and the perfume, this, those things would have cost a lot. Those, those women would have had to make an investment in, this, in those spices and the perfume and these items so that they could make... In, in doing this, this is an act of love, but there's a financial sacrifice in this. They are giving well beyond just... Their good intentions. They're, and, you know, they're where, your, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Well, I think we can tell where their hearts were, were because of where their treasure went. They intended to pour this perfume, the perfume oils over the body because this grave would be used again. This, this tomb, this cave would be used again. And to you know, dampen the smell, that, that's what this is about. You dampen the smell so that as time goes by, you could clear the bones out and you could reuse the tomb. But it's also, so it's, so it's just one of these, it's a thing that has to be done. But it's, beyond, it's, it's more than that. It's a thing of honor and respect for this Jesus, their king, the one whom they loved. They did have so much love and respect for Jesus, and they expressed their love with this costly gesture. So as for us, how do I, how do you, how do we express our love to the king? What does it cost you? It, are, are you are, have you experienced a costly gesture? In, in what way does your expression cost you? Is it costly to you financially? Is it costly to you for your reputation? How about to your status or to your worldly pursuits, to your friendships in the world, 
What is it that you hold with tight hands? Might it be that God would be asking you to offer this that you hold with tight hands to Him as a costly gesture to express your love? To see if you're willing to let go. What is it you are willing to pay to express your love? Do you wish that you could be more free from the pursuits of this world and the passions of this world? If so, I think the answer is really to fall more in love with Jesus. As we fall in love with this king, we will want to give. I think it's that natural generosity. Once we understand how generous the Lord has been to us, then we want to give. These women, as they approached this tomb, they were not expecting the resurrection. Nobody could even think of such a thing. And the idea, that again, that would kind of thwart some other theories. The, these women would not have spent this kind of money on, these, on this perfume and those spices to go to a tomb that they already knew or expected it was going to be empty or that somebody robbed or what, whatever. Whatever theory you want to talk about. Why would these women be into that if, and why would they have spent the money? So there was no expectation of that. They were shocked when they got there. We, the reader, know what they do not know. That this Sunday morning would not be about mourning. They went to mourn and anoint. But this Sunday would not be about mourning. It would be about hope for the living. They were expecting to find Jesus, but instead they experienced shockwaves which continue to reverberate throughout the centuries, even to today. So the next thing we see in this story is that holiness strikes fear. In verse 3 it says, And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. So these women are going along, talking about whatever's on their mind, such as we're headed to this tomb. Who would roll away the stone? These are It's just the common conversation about those things that were on their mind. But when they get there, the stones rolled away, and inside is this young man. Both Luke and John note that these would be angels, and there would be two angels. But it's interesting that Matthew and Mark speak of one because they're basically, uh, your focus is on the one who's their spokesperson between the two. And and that's the purpose of even introducing him. But I think it's also interesting that uh, Mark refers to him as a young man. Then, like many other times in Scripture, and many times in Mark, when this power or the divinity of Jesus is revealed, there's shock. So these women were not shocked, and, and it was not like a surprise visit. It wasn't like, he, you know, it's the boo thing. They, they, they were not surprised by his appearance or a sudden appearance. It was a fear and trembling because of this holiness of who this man is or who he represents. And we've seen that throughout our study in Mark is like when Jesus held, healed the, the uh, demonic uh, garrison that they asked, the, the crowd in that village asked Jesus to leave. There was fear in them. They, they just, okay, we don't know who you are or what you're doing. So when Jesus would exhibit his divinity and that power, like, okay, we've had enough of you. Please leave. Thank you for coming and visiting, but you must go. You've worn out your welcome here. Well, this is that same kind of shock and fear. It's that holy fear that they had. So they found this, uh, it was an alarming event because their expectations uh, of going to the tomb, the stones already rolled away. Jesus is not there. The tomb is empty. And 
there are the there's this angel or these angels there, and now the angel's talking. So the whole event is alarming in itself, but nobody has to tell them that there's something significantly different about this interaction with this man. So they have this holy fear. The next thing we see is that uh, they are commissioned by this man. They're commissioned to tell, which is that I think a becomes a universal uh, principle. And it begins here, we are commissioned to tell. Verse 6 says, and, and he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the, the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to, to anyone, for they were afraid. So there's an announcement here from the, this uh, angel or this young man. He is, he is risen. He's not here. Why do you look for the living among the dead? And it's this proclamation that he is actually alive. And it is futile for the, the, there's no, to be no mourning because he has risen. And that's this proclamation. That's the, the announcement that comes. But first in this announcement, these verbs in verse 6, if you'll look at verse 6 with me, they refer to both sides of the resurrection at the same time. I mean, within this, within this uh, verse 6. It says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, that's your, your hearing, that's his present, who was crucified. So the, this text is telling us, this angel is saying that that is the right Jesus. The Jesus you're seeking now is the Jesus who was crucified. And it says, he has risen. So he's already risen. He is not here, current, present. So the angel is not expecting them to receive this information, the facts, through some mystical, spiritual experience. The angel simply tells these women plain words of truth. You got the right Jesus. I know who you're looking for. He has risen. He is not here. And this, that I think so many, uh, so many times, so many people are looking for that next spiritual high. If I only could feel, if I could be emotionally transported into something. I don't know what it is, but I'll know it when I get it. Well, there's, there are these plain words that come from God himself through his messenger that say, let me help you discern. You're in a time of trial. You're in a time of trouble. You're in a state of confusion. Let me help you. Who you're looking for? That Jesus who was crucified. Yes, the same one. He has risen. And then the, this angel points them to Jesus. Saying, it says, see the place where they laid him. He's inviting them to know this resurrected Jesus who they already knew as the historical Jesus. We're bridging those there is not some great dichotomy between the two. He is one and the same. And this angel is ma making sure they have this invitation to know the resurrected Jesus, who they already knew as this historical Jesus. Now, interesting in here, uh, th through this angel, the gospel is very first preached in this empty tomb. The New Testament preachers, like Paul to the Corinthians in the passage we read, reference the resurrection... To identify, just kind of like this angel did, it identifies the Jesus who, wh whom they are proclaiming. So they're proclaiming a Jesus, but let me be sure you understand which Jesus. This Jesus that God sent, that you killed, that you hung on a cross, that you buried, and then in three days he 
rose from the grave. So this is central, and it, it, it becomes central not to just to identify him, but it was the fact that he did raise from the grave, that he is risen, is, is the, the key thing, and it's a principle of the gospel that goes forth throughout the New Testament, throughout the preaching, throughout Acts that we see, throughout Corinthians as we see, throughout Romans. It is significant. This announcement comes with this commission. Go and tell others. And Peter, what a word of grace, forgiveness, hope, and promise to each one of those disciples who abandoned Jesus on the cross and to to Peter specifically to allow him to know that he was not beyond redemption. Because, you know, Peter was the one who had that horrific denial, not once, but twice, no, three times, he denied Christ, denied knowing him. And at this point, Jesus is reassuring him, tell the brothers, tell the disciples, and Peter. This becomes a prototype for Christians to spread the message. They, and I, I know a lot of times we get anxious when we hear this because, oh, preacher's going to tell me I need to go tell somebody. How can you not? How can you not? I don't mean to yell at you and say, go tell somebody, but if you've been actually set free from your sins, if you're not bound by Satan anymore, if you can rejoice that you live in him, how can you not? How can you not? We know that when something good happens to us, and I, you know, I got a smoker not long ago and I love to smoke. So when I, when I, when I smoke stuff, it's no, if it's just me, that's no fun. I've got to share it with somebody. So I run some over to the Kunk's house from time to time. Barb and Brian are coming. What are we going to do? I'm going to smoke. Why? Because I have somebody to share it with. And we, we're all like that. You eat a good piece of cake, you don't want to eat alone. You want to share that with somebody. It's your birthday, you, have, you want cake, and you want to share it with somebody. Even if you're not, I, I'm not even into birthdays. I ain't getting any cake, and I'm whining. I would like some cake, and then I want to share it with somebody. But we do that, we want that. So the reality is, if, if we are experiencing the joy of being set free, we want to share that with somebody. And this is as natural, it should, this should not be intimidating. And I used to be in a church and was on a committee and they changed its name from the evangelism committee to something else. And I was a young Christian and I didn't understand. I just knew we needed to tell some people about Jesus and we needed to tell them right there in the church. And then we figure out this name was changed. I'm like, well, why was the name changed? And I can't tell you what the name was changed, like the outreach or something that meant something entirely different. I mean, if you take the big E word away, and, and that's how they refer, referred to it as the E word. I'm like, it's evangelism. It's to tell. And why should we, why, so we, we want to we wanna con you people on the committee. This is not evangelism. We're going to call it something else. Well, by the time they got done with their pitch, it was also distorted. It was not evangelism. It was just as well that they changed their title of the committee because it was not evangelism because we weren't going to tell people about jesus we were going to do something nice for them do something nice for somebody is nice and that's a good thing but this is this is the heart of the gospel about jesus he is risen he is risen this is the truth this is what is to be passed on this i think becomes that prototype for all christians and then we know we know that later it, it went right to the disciples and then from the disciples it went to other other uh other followers, and then to those who were not followers, to the first to the Jew, and then to the Gentile, and then those readers of Mark's gospel. The concept is there. We're to tell others. The message is to go forth. This is the good news. We do want to tell others. And then it comes through the ages that somehow you hear of the gospel through God's word and the Holy Spirit drawing you, and you respond. And for some of you, that was a long time ago. For some of us, it wasn't so long ago. Well, still... It's because it went forward. And we know that this is kind of just simply pointing to 
that great commission of go and make disciples. And again, this shouldn't be a thing that gets us nervous. It should be something that we rejoice in because this is the message to be spread that he is not here, he is risen. And we should glory in that message. This message also contains a reminder of Jesus' word before when he said that he would have to suffer and die and he would have to be raised from the dead and they would meet again. And again, they need reminded of God's word. I contend that, what's your problem? Okay, you tell me your problem, now I give you the answer. What you really have is a gospel problem. What we really are doubting is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And the reason we get our eyes set on what man thinks of us, and we feel bad today, or whatever, is because we do not find our satisfaction in what God in Jesus Christ has done for us through the gospel. So what have we done? We've forgotten the gospel. What do we need? We need to be, well, we need the gospel. And we are guilty as and especially as old Christians, of understanding that the gospel is something that brought us to faith, and then from that, we'll just take it on our own. And what we really do need to do is be good. And the better I can be, the better you will think of me. And it's so false, and it's so defeating. The re- and, and we don't want people to see the real us, because that's we, we, we cannot let them see the real us. Where that's a problem is we're not preaching the gospel to ourselves, because the gospel says to us that God loves us just like you are. And the fact that your co-worker doesn't like you or, or is not nice to you or the lady at the checkout at the supermarket has nothing to do with your identity. Your identity is not laid up in the checkout clerk at the supermarket. Your identity is not laid up in your co-worker. Your identity is in Christ Jesus. And so when that is true, it becomes very freeing. Verse 8 says that the women were afraid and said nothing to anyone. Now, this is where the DVR just quit. They're like, what? What? Well, how did it end? Where? Mark, did you, did you really mean like, did you want to tell us that they somehow overcame their fear and they actually went? Did, did you mean to tell us that they had a moment or another encounter or, or something and had courage that somehow the Lord gave them so that they would go and tell? I don't know what Mark may have meant to tell us, but then as you read these uh, verses that they say are not necessarily part of the original text, they have nothing to do with that kind of story. So they they really don't fit with the story. And so now that somebody's told us, and you read that, you're like, maybe that's not part of the original text. Maybe that's not what he meant. Maybe the DVR did cut off, and we don't know Mark's conclusion. But we do know that women did leave the tomb, and they did go back, because we got some other gospel accounts, and we see those, and we know that these women... Uh, left the tomb, ran, and told the disciples. So how that ends, we just don't know. The the DVR is cut off. So there's speculation that Mark ended his gospel with this kind of cliffhanger intentionally. There's also speculation that there must have been a scroll in there. The end of the scroll it got like ruined. I can I can imagine this on my desk. And by the time you pick it up, there's only so much left. And this is what this is what it had. Now that, and that could very well be, but all that stuff is basically speculation. There, we really know, we don't know. But um, one commentator says, and very importantly, the risen Jesus summons the same disciples who abandoned him and denied him, such as Peter, to renew their discipleship and to become again his followers. Thus, this earliest form of proclamation of the Christian gospel in Mark, the news of the risen Jesus not only heralds the victory of Jesus over death, but also announces and embodies the forgiveness that is part of the gospel. 
The cowardly disciples are implicitly forgiven their cowardice in the words of the young man. And this forgiven core of disciples becomes the foundational group of the Christian community of others who likewise know themselves to be forgiven of their sins. I think there is the beauty of the restoration of bringing from death and alienation, bringing it to life and unity. This is the nature of our God. We've been singing this for the last six weeks, that his nature is to always have mercy. And in that, we can find mercy. So, you know, for us, if we've found ourselves lamenting of your failings of following Jesus, if you've ever been in a situation where you have to fight the urge to kind of clean yourself up to make you presentable, yourself presentable before Jesus, the Lord says to you, his grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. Stop your running. Stop your justifying. Stop your embarrassment from not following close enough to whatever standards. He says, come, come as you are. On Good Friday, I, I wore the black robe to remind us and emphasize our sin. And in the role of a priest, the representative of people to God and God to the people, I wore this black robe to remind us of that great cost to God who in Jesus Christ bore our sins and paid our debt. All of your failings, all of your longings, and all of your passions are answered in this gospel. He has the power to save and to bring the dead to life. The grave couldn't hold him. He overcame death. And as we read, through one man, death came to all men. Yet through another, the God-man, Christ Jesus, through the resurrection, brought eternal life to all who would believe. This resurrection proves God's acceptance of Jesus as his sacrifice to propitiate, to eliminate, to wipe out, to cover our sins. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, says, and if you're, and, and if Christ is not raised, has been, if, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. So when people say, yeah, I'm a believer, but I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. Well, uh, it appears to me, according to Paul, that it's pretty important. And it becomes theologically important because the reason Paul writes that is because was this sacrifice, was this lamb, and God acts the same in the, in, in the New Testament as he did in the Old, there's this whole propitiation, expitiation of sins with through these this shed blood all throughout, and we're going to get to the good and gory part of Exodus. We're not there yet, but you know it's coming. And but it does it doesn't just change channels and go to a different a different Christian station on our cable. No, he acts the same, and so in the same way, his wrath needed to be satisfied. And if our sensitivities to God being a wrathful God say he has no wrath, we are lying to ourselves and to each other. And it's in this wrath that. Because, theologically, understanding that Jesus was this perfect lamb, this perfect sacrifice. And we know he was. When he began his ministry, John saw him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is when his cousin, John, John the Baptist, saw him at the beginning of the ministry. This is way before his revelation happened as to who he was. But John knew who he was, and he knew that he was this perfect lamb. Well, that'd be just a goofy thing to say if it has nothing to do with all that blood and gore. It's in this blood and gore that happened on the cross that then Jesus becomes this satisfaction to God's wrath. And 
Why do we know he was, it was a satisfactory? Because he has risen. He was accepted then fully by God. And therefore, he has fully eliminated our sins. So, that resurrection is central to our faith and that it does separate us from all other religions because the God we worship is a God who is alive. In that, he was accepted because of... Not, not only was he deny, denying himself... But he was also accepted because he kept the law. So he was obedient to all of the law, and that's his active obedience. That passive law is where he gave himself up and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we have passive and active obedience that go into him being this acceptable sacrifice. In this, he satisfied that wrath of God, taking upon himself that wrath, so that all who believe were freed from that wrath. But that's not all. That's not all. That's only half the gospel. And that's what everybody knows. But what still is news to so many people who call themselves Christians is this part of the gospel. So just as our sin was imputed or accounted to Him, and He bore our sins on the cross, and everybody will shake their heads. Everybody knows that's true. Everybody knows that's what we claim. His righteousness, because He was actively obedient, His righteousness is imputed or accounted to us. And the Bible says that when then God sees us, we are robed in the righteousness of Christ. We all do have white robes on. And though those that are near me, and you all, I can't hide it very well, you know I'm not holy. Putting the robe on really doesn't make me holy. But the righteousness of Christ makes me acceptable before God the Father. And it's in this free exchange. And I think this is the beautiful part of the gospel which is so desperately missing. And some I don't understand uh, historically in the church where it got changed, but we only tell one side. And when we only tell one side that Jesus took your sins, we get into the position of we better behave or we're going to lose it. Because I don't look like somebody who's, who Jesus took my sins. I look like a sinner. And you know that. I don't have to convince you. But you're, you're like, where's the holy man? Where's the holy man that's worth saving? No, he's not in this church. He's, he's none of us. No, he's none of you. And it's thanks be to God. It's although you were sinners, when you came to faith, God gave you this gift of faith, and at that moment, you were as accepted by him as you will ever be. He loved you and gave himself for you. Then he gives you this gift, and there's this exchange going on. Well, I didn't know it. No, you don't. And immediately, he brings you into the family, and you are an adopted Son or daughter of the king. That's why I don't care what the woman at the checkout says to me. Because I'm a son of the king. And if another church person wants to ridicule me because I don't live holy as they do, I'm okay with that. Because I am robed in the righteousness of Christ. And therefore I wore my white today so I could say that. (laughs) And it gave me an excuse to wear my green African stole that the Rwandans made for me. But... The other part that was hidden from me as a believer, I mean, I was a real believer by this point. I wasn't just a churchgoer. I was a churchgoer for a long time, didn't hear this. But then I was a believer for a long, long time, and I didn't hear this. I heard this in seminary, that we are in Him. Now, I admitted, I wasn't an avid Bible reader, and if I am, I miss a lot. I just hit the high points. I'm still amazed at just the big facts of Jesus. He came. He died. He rose. That's, that's good. This thing that you're in Him, it's all throughout the Bible. And there's, you're, not, you're not over here still an alien. You are hidden. We, we sing some song and we talk about we are hidden in Christ. And that's why we don't have to worry. 
that we have failed the king, that we have not measured up, that we have not kept our part of the bargain. We know we haven't. That's the, that's the point. And the reason this church is different and the reason you people are different and the reason I see, and it's beautiful from my position to get to see and know you and hear your stories and see how the grace of the Lord touches and works in you, those who are young believers, those who are old believers. Because when we come together, we come to the foot of the cross as sinners to receive grace. Grace upon grace, week after week. And we don't come as good people coming to church to get better. We come as sinners looking and re- to receive this beautiful gift of grace. So, I probably had a note or two. I think I just go to the bottom of the page and as those of us, us, who have been set free from sin through this costly purchase, we were purchased with a price, and that's what we covered on Friday. Those who were co- purchased with a price and have become those sons and daughters of the King, let us gladly proclaim, Hallelujah, Christ has risen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray.